Let's remind ourselves of where we've come so far in this fourth vision. We've covered four of the seven parts, four of the seven symbolic figures which together are painting a picture for us of what it means to say that the risen Jesus is Lord over the devil and his schemes. So we saw, uh, first of all, that the Father's plan stands firm from the beginning, in fact from before the beginning in eternity, his plan to send the Son into the world to redeem sinners and that plan was worked out through the choosing and the saving of the nation of Israel, represented by the first figure in this vision, the woman clothed with the Son who gives birth to the Messiah. Then we saw the opposition and the rage of the devil represented by that red dragon who's unsuccessful in destroying the woman and her child. Now while the devil's fate was sure from the very moment that he opposed the father's plan, declared in that very first statement of the Gospel in Genesis 3 that the woman's offspring would crush the head of the serpent. His defeat was conclusively secured and declared by the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Now the devil knows his time is short. He knows there's no way he can destroy God or his people And his focus has shifted from the Old Testament national Israel to the true Israel, those who are in Christ by faith, expressed in this age as the church. And his goal is to distract, to discourage, to deceive, so that the testimony of the church to Jesus Christ will be diminished and will be compromised. So he's set up what we could call the scam to end all scams. Have you ever had the phone call or the text or the email from someone claiming to be a a legitimate business, a bank or a service, but they're really someone who wants to steal your money? Uh, The ACCC recently reported that $3.1 billion was stolen by scammers in Australia just in the last 12 months. The reason scammers are so successful is they do a good job at mimicking the real thing. And we don't realise that it's a fake until it's too late. Another reason is that they'll offer the victim something that sounds too good to refuse especially if it seems to be something that's going to fix their problems. Now that's what the devil does. He creates a scan version of the true God and the true plan of God seen in the false trinity of the dragon and the two beasts. So the first prong of the devil's strategy, largely from outside the church, represented by that first beast or antichrist is a claim to be able to give to us 
all that the true Christ gives, which is ultimately victory over death. He offers peace to all those who worship him. But if God's people stand firm and refuse to compromise the truth, that peace very quickly turns into opposition and persecution. The second prong of his strategy, largely from within, was represented by that second beast, which later we'll see is called the false prophet. And this strategy is to weaken and undermine the church by distracting us from the gospel and tempting us to adopt idolatrous forms of worship that are based more on experience than on hearing God's word. Now we were in a sense left hanging then at the end of chapter 13 with these beasts presented to us and all we had were the calls to faithful endurance and to wisdom. Now these three figures, this unholy trinity, will appear a bit later in Revelation and we'll see their final demise. But in the meantime we have to sit with this reality that under the sovereignty of God the devil is still active in the world. We don't need to be fearful or overwhelmed because we know he cannot destroy us but we need to remain on our guard to be aware of his scheme so that we can be prepared and able to recognise his schemes when they come. So now, just like in the previous visions of the seals and trumpets, we come to the fifth part of the vision with the same question we had with the seals and the trumpets. Where are the people of God then in the midst of all of these judgments? As we look around us and we see the chaos and the damage that the devil is causing in the world and in the church under God's sovereignty, what, where does our security and our confidence lie? And what should we be doing in response to all of this? Well, that's what we see in the last three figures in this vision. Our first response, we see in verse 1 of 14, is to lift our vision away from the devil and onto Jesus. Jesus actually appears uh, twice in this vision, or three times if you count the time he was mentioned as the child born of the woman at the start. But both here and in, John, in, in verse 14, John says, Then I looked, and behold. Here it's Jesus the Lamb. In verse 14, it's Jesus the Son of Man on a cloud of glory. He uses two words here that both mean to see, but the second one is translated as behold because it's in the form of a command. So John is saying here, I saw and I want you to also see. 
We might imagine him standing there pointing, saying, look, do you see what I see? He's simply told us about the woman and the dragon and the beasts, but the moment he sees Jesus, he doesn't merely go on to describe what he sees, he proclaims it. He demands that we too look and see Jesus. So just this uh, simple phrase, I saw and behold, gives us the heart of what it means to proclaim the gospel. As we sometimes sing, we cannot but speak of that which we've seen. Like John, we must first clearly see Jesus for who he truly is. And then, like John, we can point him out to others and call others to behold. We need ourselves first to be captivated by the beauty and the glory of Jesus, to see him of infinite value and as all of our joy and all of our hope. If we're then to go on and to share a captivating vision of him to others. In fact, if we're truly captivated by Jesus, then sharing him with others won't be a struggle. It won't be an embarrassment. It will naturally flow from our captivated hearts. So while there's nothing wrong with being trained in sharing the gospel, in evangelism, we can learn all of the right techniques, all of the right methods in the world and it won't have any power unless it springs out of the reality of our own relationship with him as we gaze on his majesty and his beauty and point him out to others. So in this vision, the glory of Jesus outshines the fake glory, the gaudiness of the dragon and the beasts. See how he's standing on Mount Zion, the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. The activity of the dragon and the beasts is down on the earth and the sea, but standing high above them is this mountain on which Jesus stands. Now this should remind us a bit of the scene at Mount Sinai in Exodus 32. Israel, the people of Israel, were down on the plains before the mountain, wondering why Moses had taken so long. And so they decided to set up an image of a golden calf. Their initial request to Aaron was, make us gods who shall go before us. But once it was set up, Aaron tried to pretend that the worship of the calf was actually worship of the Lord. That was their antichrist, the image that they said, we'll take the mark of this image because we don't know if the God who brought us out of Egypt is going to be big enough and powerful enough to go before us and take us into the land. Now the sound of their idolatrous worship came up the mountain to Moses as he was coming down. 
And it sounded to him like the sound of war. It wasn't harmonious, it was chaotic and discordant, which is the kind of worship that idols produce. Yet, while Israel was worshipping this idol on the plains, their antichrist, Moses was up on the mountain where the Lord himself had come down and was making a covenant with his people to be their God who would walk among them. So here too we see God's glory on a mountaintop, overshadowing the chaos of idolatry down on the plain. But it's different to Mount Sinai. This isn't the Lord who's hidden from sight in a dark cloud, known only through lightning and thunder and earthquakes and rumblings and a trumpet blast and shaking. This is the Lord who is the Lamb who was slain, the outshining of the glory of the Lord, clearly seen, no curtains, no clouds blocking our view. And the other difference is the location of the Lord's people. They're not down on the plain engaging in the idolatry. They're up on the mountain with him in his presence. Now we've met this crowd of 144,000 before, back in chapter 7. They were depicted both as 12,000 from each tribe of Israel and as this great multitude, too numerous to count from every nation. Remember what we were told? Uh, There we are. No, that's not it. I didn't add that in. We were told, Revelation 7.17, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. That's what we're seeing here, isn't it? The flock is being shepherded by one who is one of them, the lamb. In Jesus, God has not only come down from heaven onto the mountaintop, but he's gathered his flock and brought them up onto the mountaintop to be with him. So there's a contrast there between Sinai and Zion. In fact, the writer of Hebrews brings out that contrast. Hebrews 12. We have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the heavens beg, made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, the 144,000 who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus 
the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So there's some stark contrasts to note here. Firstly, in we got 13, yep, 13, 16 to 18. Have we got that there, Peter? 13, 16, 18. We heard of the mark that the second beast put on those who worship the first beast, 666, which is the number of the beast's name. But these people here on Mount Zion, they're also marked on their foreheads with not one but two names, the name of the Lamb and the name of the Father. The beast marked people as a sign of their slavery to him as their false father and king. The spirit marks us as a sign of our adoption into the father's family as true sons and daughters, co-heirs with Jesus. Those whom he's redeemed with his precious blood, the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Secondly, if there was to be a soundtrack of this vision, the soundtrack of the beasts in chapter 13, what would we have heard? It would have been haughty and blasphemous words of the beast and the idolatrous worship of those who follow it. Now we've come to Mount Zion and there's another sound that drowns out all of that. It's so loud that John describes it as the sound of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. But it's not raw noise like a waterfall or thunder. It's, it sounds like that in volume. It's so deafening, but it sounds like harpists because it's the sound of singing. This is the true worship of the Lamb that's drowning out the idolatrous worship of the world. Now, 700 years before John wrote this, somewhere between 640 and 609 BC, the prophet Zephaniah described a very similar scenario. Zephaniah prophesied during the time of King Josiah and he foretold of the time of exile that Judah would face in the near future. But like many of the prophets, his book ends on a high note. Here's what he says, Zephaniah 3, 9-13. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. For beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispensed, dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. 
but I will leave in your midst the people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Does it sound familiar? John is describing the same people that Zephaniah did and he shows that by echoing Zephaniah's words when he says, in their mouth no lie was found for they are blameless. He's he's saying in effect those people that Zephaniah spoke of 700 years earlier, this is those people. Which is why they're doing exactly what the people in Zephaniah 3 were commanded to do. Uh, Where are we? uh, Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is a beautiful picture of what it means to be the Lord's people. See how this passage particularly verses 14 to 17, opens and closes with the mention of singing. In fact, in Hebrew, the first and the last word in that passage is sing. But notice that in the, in the beginning, the people are called to sing and rejoice in the Lord, while at the end, they are told that the Lord himself rejoices and sings over them. The structure of this passage is, have we got the image there? It's called a chiasm, where the main point is in the middle and then the ideas at the start are repeated in the second half in reverse order. So the main point right in the middle is what? Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Now why is it that the people on Mount Zion can take courage and confidently lift their hands, the implication being get on with life and serving and loving? Well, it's because as we see in the first half, the Lord has forgiven them of their sins and he's defeated their enemies. And secondly, he's come to dwell in their midst. And because of that, they're called to sing and to shout, to rejoice and exult. Now that they've seen that he's done what he promised to do from the very beginning. And then we can trace those same ideas through the second half. We see that the same God who has saved them and is in their midst, verse 17a, is now singing over them. The Lord joins his voice with his people 
So that it's not just a one-way thing, it's not just people offering worship upwards to God, it's also God singing over and to his people, quieting them with his love. That's a picture there of a parent singing a lullaby to their small child to give them rest so they can go to sleep. It's the picture of our father who takes pleasure in his children, who delights to bring us to a place of rest and peace. So see how in our vision the 144,000 are singing this new song before the throne, before the living creatures and the elders. They've been brought right into the throne room of God. They're joining in with the heavenly worship that we saw in chapters 4 and 5. And it's not only a new song, but it's an exclusive song. Only the redeemed can sing it. And I think the implication here is that only they can sing it because they've been taught this song by the Lamb. Because the Lamb is there among them, teaching them to sing. When we worship, we worship Jesus, the Lamb, but we're also led by him to worship the Father. Jesus is the Lamb, he's also the great High Priest who leads the true worship in the temple. That's why, by the way, we don't call those who lead the service worship leaders. There's only one worship leader in the church. It's Jesus. Because he is the Son of God, we worship him as God, but because he's also the Son of Man, the one who's restored true worship, He's redeemed us from idolatry and he's brought us with him through his sacrifice at the altar right into the holy place and he leads us in singing praise to the Father. God's redeemed people are to be known as a singing people. But note I said singing, not musical. There is a difference. We live in a culture that has made music an idol. If you don't believe me, just read about the frenzy that occurred this week when the Taylor Swift concert tickets were made available. Some tickets were being resold for up to $6,000. So if you want to know what your idols are, just look at what you're willing to spend your money on. Music for us today in our culture is all about entertainment. It's all about giving us an experience that we can feel almost like a religious encounter. So there's nothing quite like going to a great multitude at a concert where the musicians act almost like priests and priestesses who lead us into an ecstatic state as we're carried away and we're carried along by the adoration of the crowd. Now in the modern church we face the temptation to turn our corporate worship 
into something that resembles the world because it gets results, doesn't it? If you run your church like a concert, you'll get the crowds. So today, music is something that's seen as central and vital to a church being a healthy church. But the New Testament doesn't tell us to play music. It tells us to sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord. Music can help facilitate our singing, but singing, not the music, is the focus. The singing of the redeemed, this thunderous sound that drowns out everything else. So I think it's time that the church threw away its reputation for producing music and reclaimed our image of a people who sing, sing the praises of our redeeming Lord. Now you're probably wondering about the start of verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It may bother you that this seems to be saying, firstly, that the 144,000 are all males, or secondly, that sexual relations with a woman would defile them, as if there's something unclean about women or about marriage. But remember, John here is describing a vision which is to be taken symbolically, not literally. In the Old Testament there were three ways, at least, that a man might defile himself with a woman by entering into a sexual union with another woman who's not his wife, committing adultery, or by visiting a prostitute most of which would have been associated with a pagan temple, or by marrying a non-Israelite woman. In short, any, any form of illicit sexual activity was defiling oneself. But sexual immorality is used throughout the Bible as an image of idolatry. Israel as a wife being unfaithful to the Lord, her husband. So this description there is simply symbolic of those who have been redeemed from idolatry, who may have been engaging in that in the past but have been made a new creation. Such were some of you. We were all idolaters until we were redeemed and brought up onto the mountain with the Lamb. Now what's remarkable about all these statements about God's people here, both here and in Zephaniah, is that taken on their own, they're not technically true. The people of Zephaniah's day had engaged in idolatry and injustice and lies. They weren't humble and lowly. They were haughty. Which one of us could stand on Mount Zion among the 144,000 and say without equivocation in our own right that we have not lied or that we are blameless or that we've never engaged in idolatry. 
That's why it's mentioned twice that these people representing us are those who have been redeemed. Verse 3, the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And verse 4, these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So we don't stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb among us because of our own merits. We're there because we who were once slaves to sin, prisoners to our selfish desires and captive to the dragon and to the idols that he set up. We were once led astray by the devil. We were beaten into submission by his accusation. But then the Son of Man came and redeemed us by stepping into our place, dying our death, so that we've been set free. And he's raised us up to be with him on Mount Zion, before the throne of his Father. It's only a heart that's been set free by him, a heart that's been captivated by his beauty that is truly then going to be able to sing and make melody to God. I'm going to finish with the rest of Psalm 18. And I think we're up to, what verse are we up to, Peter? We got it there? Reading from verse 43. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortress. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me. See how this isn't speaking about us? This is speaking of Jesus, the one who has been made head of the nations, the King of Kings who delivered me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You rescued me from the man of violence. And what's Jesus' response to his father after taking him through the cross, after delivering from his enemies, raising him up in glory, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. There's the king, the lamb, who's in our midst singing to the name of the Lord as he leads us to also sing 